Welcome to Forward Radio's Truth to Power. Uh, I'm Hart Hagen, and we're here with Doug Lowry of uh, Sowers of Justice Network, and especially our featured guest is Erica Jackson of Frack Tracker Alliance, which can be found at fracktracker.org. Uh, Erica, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to be good to have you here. So, why don't you uh, tell us about uh, you know Frack Tracker Alliance and your work and, and how you got into it? Sure. So, Frack Tracker Alliance is an environmental nonprofit. We study, map, and communicate the risks of the oil and gas industry. Uh, my work is manager of community outreach and support. So, I work to get data and information about um, the oil and gas industry and its impacts to people and individuals and organizations that are uh, working towards just energy solutions um, and working to you know, protect their communities from extractive fossil fuel industries. And so you're located in Pittsburgh uh, and that's way up the Ohio Valley, but uh, so there, there's a lot going on in oil and gas in the Ohio Valley, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. So. Uh, we're above the Marcellus and Utica Shale formations, so those are two of the you know biggest uh, fracking or two of the biggest shale formations um, in terms of fracking. But there's also just a long history of oil of the oil and gas industry in this region. Um, you know, since the 1800s, this uh, this part of the country has been um, exploited for its natural resources. Right. Well. That's what we do here, right? <laughs> so uh, Erica Jackson is the manager of community outreach and support for Frack Tracker Alliance. Uh, she leads Frack Tracker Alliance's outreach efforts and supports mapping and data needs of communities impacted by the oil and gas development. Uh, you received your bachelor's degree in environmental studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and you've also done research with the Pitt Center for Healthy Environments and Communities. Some of that was around uh, like the social justice aspect of air quality. Am I on the right track with that? Yeah, yes. Looking at um, you know environmental justice and um, populations in Pennsylvania that are disproportionately impacted by air pollution. And so, what was it about like fracking and your possible work at Frack Tracker that made that such an attractive opportunity for you? Um, so, in my previous research, I was doing a lot of mapping and looking at air pollution. And I found that to be a really powerful tool for research, um, but also just a really, I think maps also hold a lot of political power. And um, they're also something that is, you know, a little fun and creative to make. And so that's kind of what attracted me to Frack Tracker Alliance initially, because we do a lot of the mapping, um, because a lot of times it can be really difficult to find just basic information about this industry. Um, you know, are there well pads near my house? If so, where are they? Are there pipelines? Um, are there processing stations? This information, the industry doesn't make that readily available uh, for a reason. So that's kind of where Frack Tracker comes in and that's what um, got me interested in it. And also uh, Frack Tracker, you know, has a big focus on looking at health um, impacts, human, you know, human health impacts and um, with this industry. And so that's another, you know, thing I was interested in. Um, you know, pursuing. Right. So what is fracking and how did you, or why should we be concerned about it? So uh, the definition actually varies a little bit, but generally, uh, you know, fracking is a method of extracting oil and gas. Um, 
And the term is generally applied to a more recent uh, wave of technology in the industry that involves really resource intensive well pads that are you know, several acres, um, many wells on a well pad. They're really resource intensive and it um, generally involves drilling thousands of feet underground into that shale rock formation. And then the wells um, extend horizontally, sometimes up to three miles. Um, and then they explode the shale rock with uh, water and sand and chemicals. Um, so when you say that it's resource intensive, what are the different resources that we're talking about? So the big one is water. Um, fracking a well can you know, take 10 million gallons of water um, um, and upwards from that. And um, the industry gets water, you know, basically like, extremely, you know, dirt cheap prices um, mm. and is, you know, withdrawing that from groundwater or creeks and rivers in the region. Um, so it's really research, uh, water intensive, but it also takes up a lot of land. So of course, trees have to be cleared. Uh, silica, frac sand, which also has to be mined from somewhere. A lot of times the Great Plains, Wisconsin, uh, which has its own health impacts. Um, and then the different chemicals used in the fracking process are some of the resources. So there's fracking and then there are cracker plants. Um, and that's a term that I had not heard until like a year and a half ago. Uh, so what is a cracker plant and what does a cracker plant do and why should we be concerned about it? Uh, a cracker plant is, uh, so it's referring to a uh, a place or a process where oil and gas feedstock undergoes this cracking process. Um, it's a chemical reaction that breaks down the oil and gas into a petrochemical process. So for example, an ethane cracker takes ethane gas from fracked wells and then converts it into ethylene. Um, and then ethylene can become different petrochemical products like for example, polyethylene plastic, the most common type of plastic. Um, and we should be concerned about this because ethane crackers are actually a huge part of the fossil fuel um, picture. Uh, there are, they're often, you know, the petrochemical industry is often left out of the conversation around fossil fuels, but there are so many things made out of fossil fuels that um, aren't, you know, energy. Um, and they're, they, uh, they're concerned because they create a huge toxic burden for frontline communities that are living right next to them. And right now this industry is concentrated in the Gulf South and Louisiana and Texas, and they, uh, they're disproportionately built in communities of color. And it's some of the most blatant examples of environmental racism in this country. Uh, but there's a new wave of these petrochemical facilities kind of being planned for the Ohio River Valley region as well. So uh, give us an idea of the size. The ASH stands for Appalachian Storage Hub. I grew up saying Appalachian and I, I hear Appalachian more and I, I don't know which is supposed to be more correct, but I'll say both probably. Um, but what, what's the size of the Appalachian Storage Hub and uh, you know, where is it now and what do they want it to grow into? Yeah, that's, a, that's another one of those terms that's kind of used um, in different ways, but generally it kind of refers to, like I just said, this kind of new wave of petrochemical in, uh, infrastructure being built in Appalachia. 
it comes on the heels of you know the coal industry and then the steel industry and then the oil and gas industry and um, of course there's a lot of chemical plants like in west virginia um, and this is just yet another wave of extractive industries of um, these extractive corporations coming in trying to exploit resources from Appalachia. Um, so the storage hub refers to this kind of proposal or plan of the oil and gas industry to convert the region into a place where they continue fracking and um, they build out an even greater um, network of polluting infrastructure to convert that oil and gas into petrochemical products, most notably plastic, but also other things like fertilizers um, or explosives or paints and resins, things like that. Um, and then in terms of like the size and the scope, a lot of the plans are proposed for kind of the, the upper part of the Ohio River, um, but uh, you know, it extends in Southwest Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, West Virginia, and into Kentucky. Let me uh, read some of the stats that you uh, that I found in one of your articles on fracktracker.org. The Department of Energy predicts that production from ethylene uh, from production of ethylene from ethane in the Appalachian Basin will reach 640,000 barrels a day by 2025. 640,000 barrels per day. That uh, this this include like so here's a stat 12,500 shale and oil gas wells of which about 5,000 in Pennsylvania, 3,000 in Ohio, 4,000 in West Virginia, and about 200 in Kentucky. And then there are these, I know I'm mixing fracking and cracking here, but you know, it's hard to, uh, but 153 class two injection. Well, this is all about fracking right now. So 153 class two injection wells which are used for disposal of fracking wastewater uh, two of which are in Pennsylvania 100 in Ohio 42 in West Virginia so this is just a, a massive uh, installation and uh, you know give people an idea of, of how much of a big deal this is in terms of like the economy and the politics and also people's health is that a fair question <laughs> Yeah, it is. And one thing I think it's really important to say about those estimates that come from, you know, the Department of Energy or the industry itself is that they're oftentimes gross overestimates um, and the, the industry being overly, um, you know, excited about um, the proposed plans. So a lot of these um, proposals were put into place, um, you know, 10 or so years ago when the economics for the petrochemical industry looked a little bit better than they do now. Um, and so while, you know, industry in this part of the region was planning on building, you know, five or six ethane crackers along the Ohio River, so was China and um, Russia and uh, countries in Europe. And what's happened is there's been this um, global oversupply for petrochemicals and for ethane crackers, and it's kept prices low. So those um, those big predictions aren't happening. Um, you know, they said you know five ethane crackers would be built along the Ohio River, and there's one um, that's under construction uh, by Shell in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, and they're already saying. Um, financial experts are already saying it's not going to be 
as profitable as predicted. There's one in Ohio. Sorry. So, so if it's not profitable, then it just won't happen and we can go home and not worry about it, right? Unfortunately not. So um, unfortunately, uh, these things are heavily subsidized. So, um, you know, like the Shell Ethane Cracker in Pennsylvania received a $1.6 billion tax break to be built and um, organizations like Jobs Ohio and economic development organizations are really pushing to make them happen. So uh, we can't just ignore these plans. I just want to be, um, I just want people to know when they read these estimates that um, the, the economics of the industry are actually looking really poor right now. Um, combined with the fact that cities and towns are banning plastic, you know, we're, um, where had you know uh, local economies are um, you know maybe making plans for these big facilities and they could be really left um, kind of picking up the pieces if these uh, you know if, when these things back out. Um, so can we talk just a little bit about how this gets sold in communities? So there is an economic development um, engine in every state in every community. And I just want to say something about that. Um, lots of communities in Appalachia need jobs. Um, school funding in most cities, towns, and states is not really fairly assessed. It's paid through a lot of property taxes. And so a lot of people like the idea of being, bringing something in with the promise of jobs, 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 and some type of tax on the infrastructure itself that makes the school districts more um, fungible. The other argument is that it's cleaner than coal, which is true. Um, and I don't, I don't buy that, but go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm just saying that's what their argument is. It, it, it is cleaner, but the, the impact is really hidden. It, it's a lot further underground. And, it, and a lot of what you see with coal, you can see and smell coal, and you don't really know unless you live next to a fracking site and feel an earthquake, you don't really, it's not something um, that a lot of people know about. They don't uh, hear a lot about that. That whole energy independence idea has driven a lot of this. You know, people don't want to be dependent on a foreign nation and they, they sort of wrap it up in uh, uh, national security. And then I agree on the, on the barrels per day. I think there's a lot of false projections of the e economic windfall that comes from that. And it feels to me like we want the data. And I think where this is so helpful, all of the data that you have, that this is the best data I've ever seen about an issue we should all care about. And I just wonder, how, how do you all get your funding? I know you're a nonprofit. How do people support this type of work, not only financially, but how do we develop talking points that counter all of these points that, that get fracking plants and cracking plants installed in communities. Yeah, um, you hit on a lot of good points and it's this is a really um, nuanced issue um, that hits on the culture and the economic needs and the history of the region. Um, it's really unfortunate for a community to be placed in the position of, you know, wanting funding for their schools and roads, but, uh, you know, having to sacrifice their health um, and really that's, it's a, it's a false solution. We could have local, sustainable, healthy jobs um, and development in our 
you know, you know, funding for schools. It's just our local leaders have, you know, and our state leaders and our federal leaders have kind of failed this region and made us, you know, dependent on these companies. Um, however, there's in terms of your question about how to, you know, support, there's so many amazing individuals and grassroots groups that are, um, you know, fighting to protect their communities and working towards um, cleaner, healthier futures. So um, definitely, you know, connect with people um, online and through environmental organizations and social justice organizations. There's a growing coalition, the People Over Petro Coalition, you can find on Facebook or Twitter to get involved with and find people also interested about these um, topics. Um, and then you asked about our funding. So we largely rely on grants um, and from different foundations, but we also receive donations. Um, you can of course donate if you go to our website, um, tracktracker.org. And we also do some of our work as a fee-for-service work. So um, occasionally, a lot of our you know, work we provide um, to frontline groups and other nonprofits, our partners, as just part of our normal work. But for certain projects, we will do them as a fee-for-service model. Um, I don't know if I, if I, I hit yeah, on all of your- That's great. Um, because I think that people are afraid when they hear people basically stealing something that they've been led to believe is going to give them, you know, they think they're going to the Emerald City with this, but, but what happens along the way is there's, you know, there, there's a, a wicked witch and she, she doesn't get killed by a house. You know, th this is something that you live with forever. You know, the, the way that the earth is used in fracking is, is dangerous. The pipelines are dangerous. And what I like to tell people we have what's called karst topography here. We have dangerous topography for this because it, it, when the fracking or cracking either one is um, something that can really damage our groundwater. And you know, if you just tell people, oh, it's karst topography, and you know, if the pipe leaks, which all pipes leak, if it leaks, you know, it can get in the groundwater. But when you attach it to things that people care about, like bluegrass horse farms or Mammoth Cave, or drinking water. Louisville likes to say we're, uh, we're the, we have the best, one of the top three drinking waters in the country. That's, that's part of our marketing campaign to get people to move to Louisville or invest in Louisville as a business. We have a lot of whiskey and that whiskey depends on the water quality. So when you tell people, hey, you know, let's see, you care about whiskey, you like horses, you've been to Mammoth Cave, you like to drink water, you know, all of those things are at risk. Yeah, it's a good point of, um, you know, finding common ground. And this is like, it's such a contentious issue. And I feel like, you know, sometimes I spend so much energy on um, just, the, you know, the fact that fracking and, and fossil fuels and, um, you know, the Green New Deal and all of these things are, you know, so contentious. But um, we have to treat it with a lot of grace and understand that trust people's experiences and understand that the fossil fuel industry has uh, waged a very long and expensive campaign on, you know, PR campaign on uh, convincing us that we're dependent on this and um, finding that ground, common ground, you can always find something um, with people that maybe are on the opposite side of this issue, you know, most people 
at the end of the day, understand that these large corporations um, are their bottom line is profit. And, um, you know, they want the job, but can understand and have a little bit of distrust in that. And um, also, you know, no one wants their water poisoned or their air poisoned. So um, finding that common ground and going from there and really listening to people and not making assumptions about them um, is really important for us to, to progress and something I think that, you know, this movement can do more of. Great. So Erica, you wrote an article about the Falcon pipeline. Let me read the first paragraph of it and then we'll go from there. It says, breaking news, the Falcon ethane pipeline system is at the center of major investigations into possible non-compliance with construction and public safety requirements and failing to report drilling mud spills according to documents obtained from the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection and by Frack, or by Frack Tracker Alliance. Uh, these investigations which are yet to be released also uncovered instances of alleged data falsification in construction reports and shell pipeline company firing employees in retaliation for speaking up about these issues so what's going on there yeah so the falcon pipeline um is a key part of this petrochemical plastic conversation um it's a recently constructed pipeline um, again, through Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, beneath the Ohio, goes beneath the Ohio River, drinking water for 5 million people. Um, and it's connected to a shell ethane cracker. So basically, it would take cracked gas from a well, and it would uh, transport it to this ethane cracker to become plastic. And uh, recent documents requests, or recent public records requests have revealed a number of ways that Shell has cut corners when it comes to constructing this pipeline. And that's jeopardizing the safety and health of people and communities along the route. Um, you know, workers on this project have felt the need to risk their job to come forward as whistleblowers and report some really serious concerns to, um, to authorities at the federal government. So t tell us about like, okay, so the, if, if I'm a whistleblower in a plant, uh, what, what are some of the things I'm seeing uh, that I am willing to risk my job to come out and talk about? Yeah, so there's, a, uh, there's still things that we don't know about what's being investigated, but what we do know is that whistleblowers um, have reported that the pipeline could have been dealt with defective corrosion coating. And this puts the pipeline at risk of leaking ethane, a very flammable uh, substance. Um, it could cause landslides or explosions. Um, witnesses have also reported shall uh, retire uh, firing workers in retaliation and um, falsifying construction reports. And these types of construction reports could um, jeopardize drinking water sources or uh, well people who have wells water wells along the route or people who rely on reservoirs that the pipeline uh, crosses so Please. those are sorry uh, i was just going to say those are some of the um the the allegations that have been reported there's a lot that's again we don't know but these allegations have been vetted by public agencies and reported up the highest chain of command. So we know um, that they're not, you know, they weren't just brushed aside. 
um, there's definitely credibility to them. Right. So you mentioned drinking water. Louisville is down, is, you know, the, the Louisville's right next to the Ohio River. We get our drinking water from the Ohio River. We're downstream from all of the fracking. We're downstream from all, from the, you know, the, 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 you know, the fracking waste. We're downstream from whatever they do with the cracker plants. So what are some of the specific concerns that we should have about our drinking water? Yeah, so um, the, the Falcon Pipeline crosses the Ohio River much further upstream, kind of near the, um, near the panhandle of, of West Virginia. Um, and however, you know, it's carrying ethane every day. And I mean, it's not now, but if it comes online, it would be. And um, if it were to break or rupture or there were some incident, um, the ethane would be released into the Ohio River. Um, and the, the communities most at risk would be, you know, in Ohio, West Virginia, Steubenville, Weirton. Um, however, um, it would be carried downstream. And that pipeline is one of many pipelines that crosses the Ohio River. It's one of many um, petrochemical plants that are per permitted to discharge different pollutants into the Ohio River. And with the build out of the petrochemical industry, it would just be, um, increasing and expanding that toxic burden on the Ohio River, which is already one of the most uh, polluted rivers in the country. Right. What are some of the specific health problems that, that stem from either fracking or, uh, or ethane cracking? Yeah, so the whole process poses different risks through air, water, and soil pollution. Um, some of the health related some of the health risks from extraction can be impacts to the respiratory system and the immune system, stress, um, and uh, bigger, uh, you know, or, but other, you know, I guess chronic, I want to make sure I'm using the right term since this is a medical um, topic, but um, impacts on reproductive and fetal development have been associated, uh, connected with fracking. Um, and many of the, the chemicals used in the process are carcinogens. Um, and then refining and processing the, the fracked gas to uh, become a plastic product has its own um, you know, additional health burdens. Um, impacts uh, can include cancers, neurotoxicity, reproductive toxicity, low birth rate, um, eye and skin irritation. So there's a number of health impacts um, in the, that have, that scientific studies have backed up. And one important thing to note is that we kind of have this assumption that our, um, environmental regulators are protecting us, um, and that all of this is taken care of. And unfortunately, that's really not the case. We rely way too much, um, on these, uh, these companies to self-report and self-police. And there's so many violations and so many spills and incidents and even uh, weak regulations um, that frontline communities are, are not being protected from this industry. So uh, you're saying that the government is not really protecting us, um, generally speaking. And so I, I was gonna ask the question, 
like, okay, nothing's perfect. There's a certain price of progress. You know, you're going to have some pollutants. So Erica, you just, you're, you're just utopian. You just want this perfect world where uh, the water is perfectly pure, but the water's never going to be perfectly pure. So, you know, just cut us a break and let us have some jobs and let, let the economic development go. Let's encourage economic development and not be so hung up on minor health issues. Uh, I guess I would counter that by saying um, the, the growth of the petrochemical industry and looking at plastics isn't based on demand, actually. Um, it's uh, the industry is hoping that by continuing to make plastic, we'll continue to be dependent on it. And it's precluding us from thinking um, creatively and thinking about what are the local, um, resilient, diverse economies we could be building if we weren't courting um, Shell or um, you know this other company in Ohio, PTT, to build here. Um, you know what else could we be? Um, what could we be investing in in our communities? Um, regenerative agriculture or um, renewable energy or um, ways to be more energy efficient and use less energy and rely more on public transportation or biking and change the design of our cities. There's so many creative solutions out there and um, so many people are already working on that and doing amazing jobs and market forces are also kind of just lending themselves to the growth of, of renewable energy, but um, because these extractive industries have such a strong influence on our government, um, we're not thinking about, you know, alternatives as much as we should be. So when you say extractive, that tends to, uh, to when I think of an extractive, I think of extracting natural resources, and I also think of extracting the value that people bring to an economy. So, you know, a big company can come in and just extract natural resources. So what do you mean by extractive as opposed, you know, as opposed to what else? What, is, there an, is there an economy that's not extractive? Are there companies that are not extractive? Um, that's a really good uh, point you bring up. So by extractive, yeah, I mean, um, a company is extracting um, natural resources and uh, from a region, but also looking a bit broader, uh, what the alternative would be, it would be something, you know, locally based, um, and something that keeps opportunities in the region, um, areas that have been heavily impacted by coal and oil and gas, they're actually, uh, they've actually seen a decline in population and jobs despite the promises of these industries, many of the jobs are going and money are going to people elsewhere. Um, so the alternative to extracting and kind of colonize these companies kind of treating the region as a extraction colony um, would be for people to kind of have some agency over their community and their land and their resources um, to, uh, you know, develop them in a sustainable way. Um, and you mentioned regenerative agriculture. So does regenerative agriculture play into that scenario? Uh, the, the opposite of extraction? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, one big petrochemical product is fertilizer. And 
it's, um, you know, I, I don't have all of the solutions or really, you know, I can't even, you know, I don't have any, you know, all the solutions or answers to how do we live with completely without fossil fuels, because there really are so many petrochemical products. And yeah, one of them is fertilizer, but what would it mean if we weren't so dependent on these synthetic fertilizers oh, and, exactly. um, you know, to rethink our, our agricultural system and, um, so, so yeah, example, that definitely plays a part. Let me, let me chime into that. So, you know, everybody eats, you know, traditionally three times a day. And there's a lot of money that goes into that. Um, and, you know, if we had some assistance and some support, and even without assistance and support, we can move toward growing more of our food locally, growing more of our food regeneratively. If you look at how we get our food, or if you look at the grocery stores, if you look at the, um, the, the food, you know, what I call big food, which is not just fast food, but also full service restaurants and also groceries, they, they come into our community, they set up shop and they extract money from our community. They bring food from on average 1500 miles away um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done that could be uh, just just if you start with food, then that would be a great way to have a, a good, strong local economy, assuming we're spending like between we're spending about 10 percent of our money on food and 20 percent on health care. Um, so somebody has observed that if we if we spent more of our money on food, we'd spend less of our money on health care. So there's lots of things that, that can be done. And uh, so that's what I hear you saying, that, um, that there are opportunities. Yeah, Doug? Let me jump in here and just ask, um, given what you know, Erica, about earthquakes and pipelines, do you think it's a good idea to build pipelines and do fracking and have these plants in the middle of the New Madrid earthquake zone? Because that's where we are. Um, in 1810, uh, the geography of Kentucky was uh, dramatically changed. Real Foot Lake it was formed. That's our border between Kentucky and Missouri. And we are in this whole Ohio Valley is dead center of the New Madrid earthquake. So you talked about risks. So there are some health risks. Um, and when we started talking about food, there's also some other risks. We don't really know what's going to happen if there's a major earthquake like there was in San Francisco. But what I've, uh, I have a lot of friends who work in emergency preparedness. And they say that Louisville and, and a lot of other cities only have three days worth of food. So there's no food resiliency. And the reason for that, they've said, is because we have this uh, food economy that is completely dependent on trucks and airplanes bringing that food in. So you think about if there's no water and there's no electricity, and you can't pump gas because there's no electricity. Where just where does the basic come from? You know, and they, in emergency preparedness, they want you to have three days, at least three days of food on hand. Um, six days, you know, if you live in a house, not in an apartment. So I wonder what what you think about the the earthquake, the geography, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, definitely all these issues are related and fracking and specifically um, the injection wells where they put the waste um, are connected to, have been connected to earthquakes. 
and pipelines and other things that destabilize the earth um, are all contributing to, yeah, destabilizing the earth. And a big um, concern around pipelines is landslides. So in Pennsylvania, a few years, two years ago, uh, just north of Pittsburgh, there was a pipeline that just a few days after it came online, there was a, a heavy rain and there was a small landslide and the pipeline exploded and destroyed a home and it was caused a huge fire and it was really, really traumatizing for people that lived in that community. Um, and so of course with climate change, we're seeing increased rainfall and risk of landslides. So definitely, um, you know, building the this land where there's the karst topography that you mentioned, combined with coal mines, combined with thousands hundreds of thousands of wells combined with abandoned wells. Um, these and then pipelines, uh, they all create different um, pathways in the earth for pollution to impact groundwater. So for example, a fracked well could um, you know, somehow interact with a coal mine and then that could create acid mine drainage or um, an abandoned well could be leaking um, and if that's impacted by a pipeline, it could be leaking even more methane. Um, so the, the geology is a really important part of the picture. And like you mentioned about resiliency, I think some, sometimes when we think about um, climate change and solutions to climate change, we think about all of these really high tech new technologies, um, building, you know, um, like a, a skyscraper with like a garden, alongside of it and but really I think some of the best solutions are the low-tech um, community-based things people were doing and um, the first people that uh, lived in um, North America indigenous people um, there there are solutions that people have been doing for hundreds and thousands of years and so I think sometimes looking at the more low-tech things uh, is the way to create more resiliency. Right. So do you know much about how indigenous people and black people and Latinos have done organizing to stop this work or to find more information? Um, so I would say that um, communities of color, indigenous communities are definitely leading the, the fight on climate change in general. Um, a lot of times these are the communities, unfortunately, most impacted by extractive industries on the front lines. So I think um, definitely finding these groups um, on social media, connecting with them, supporting them, um, and yeah, finding ways to support their work and follow their leadership. Uh, I would definitely encourage that because um, they're yeah definitely leading this movement and also getting to the intersectionality of these issues um, and how they relate to systemic racism and oppression and colonialism. One of the things I hear a lot from black people in our community is how often white people show up to help but sort of take over. Um, and I think one of the things we can learn in Louisville is really to let uh, black people lead and let black women lead, lead the work. Uh, a lot of uh, us who are, who do environmental work, you know, hear back from, the, from indigenous people and from black people both that um, environmentalism in general is a white thing. 
And obviously it's an everybody thing, but I can understand why people say that. Um, and I, in Louisville, uh, West Louisville in particular, we have an area called Rubber Town. And it is an area that is, it has the, all of these chemical plants and processing plants. We're kind of a bowl, kind of like Cincinnati. So we have problems with air quality because uh, we'll have these low pressure systems that just sit over us. And then that all of that air pollution doesn't have anywhere to go. So we're already kind of in a, a state where people are predisposed. If you're genetically predisposed to cancer or other conditions, that will only add to it and make it worse. Um, in this karst topography, we also have this naturally occurring radon. So that's another thing that, that can make you predisposed. I used to be a healthcare administrator. And one of the things that I learned in oncology, the work that they're doing, it, there are multiple risk factors. So your, your goal is you might have, if you already live in an area with a lot of uh, risk factors, you don't want to add any more risk, risk factors. So it sounds, you know, from just from a health standpoint, um, Louisville is the cancer capital of the world. We do a lot of smoking. We have more smokers than anybody else in the United States and Kentucky. Um, we have a lot of uh, people who get cancer from these, from the radon that comes through the ground. And some people, of course, believe it's also just that whole, um, there's so many chemicals that we don't, we don't really know what they all are uh, in our air. And it just sounds to me like there's so many risks um, in this work. I wonder um, how we can help change the policies. You know, if, if these are not, if the companies that are doing the work are not being regulated, what at the state level and what at the federal level needs to be done to, to make that oversight more effective, more impactful, and more precise? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. I definitely don't have the, the answer, but I would say one thing is not relying on companies to self-police or self-report because they can't be trusted to do that. Um, right. right now, the, the state, like the state Department of Environmental Protection or it's different in some states, um, they're basically set up to permit polluters and they almost, they can't uh, look at the state cumulatively and say, oh, um, on account of climate change and you know the cumulative burden and uh, we're just gonna deny this, this site, even though it meets the permit requirements, you know, overall the science says we can't be um, permitting new oil and gas infrastructure. They, they have to permit it. Um, and so I think we need a fundamental shift in, in the way those agencies are set up. Um, there was just the International Environment or International Energy Administration just released its strongest warning yet that we as the, the whole world uh, cannot be developing or investing in any new fossil fuel infrastructure. So any new uh, well or processing plant or you know, fracked gas power plant uh, that is permitted is in direct defiance of what global scientists around the world are calling for. Um, but unfortunately, like these agencies are just going to keep permitting because that's how they're set up. Um, and we definitely need action at the federal level um, to to make this just transition and to make it in a way 
that uh, supports workers and supports communities that may be dependent on um, you know, these types of jobs. Um, but then we also need action you know, on the local level and local organizers. Um, and it's been so inspiring just in the past year, I feel like I've learned so much from local organizers and the power of local organizers to, uh, to take care of their communities. So I think that's, you know, policy is really important and we need it if we're going to uh, tackle climate change. But yeah, I think this past year has really shown just, you know, the, also the power of, of local organizing. What have you seen in terms of organizing based on what you've seen, based on what you've learned, what advice would you give in terms of you know, what people can do to effectively organize to bring about the policies and, and to oppose harmful projects? Um, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. And again, I don't know if I'm like qualified to be giving advice because I'm not, you know, my job isn't an organizer, I'm, you know, doing more of the mapping and, and data stuff, but just from um, what I've seen from partners and colleagues and uh, people in Pittsburgh, I would say um, people just um, having the agency or feeling empowered to just um, step up and show up to different events and get connected with like-minded people. Um, I think protests are really powerful, um, powerful organizing tool, canvassing, um, talking with your neighbors and finding that common ground, even if you don't think you have common ground. Um, I think those are some really powerful um, tools. And one thing, um, one thing I've been really inspired by in, in the past year is um, the, the work of a group in Louisiana, Rise St. James. Um, they're opposing a ethane cracker. Um, the, it's a project by a company called Formosa. Um, and they're organizing to stop it. It's in what's known as Cancer Alley in Louisiana. Um, and it's a really clear uh, example of environmental racism in which um, part of this parish or this county in uh, Louisiana, St. James, you know, there's um, already a huge toxic burden from, um, from the petrochemical industry. And, you know, it's pretty clear that the industry is trying to push out the community, which is predominantly black. Um, but this group, Rise St. James, has been super loud. They've been organizing protests and events and showing up, um, go, talking with politicians, uh, writing letters to the editor, um, I think they've done, you know, different like billboard campaigns and um, direct action and marches. Um, they've connect, uh, connected with um, local, I mean, national leaders in the environmental justice movement. Um, and so far, they've been super effective. Um, they've gotten a number of prominent, you know, leaders to speak out against this project. They helped stop another similar project in the parish. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's Rice St. James is the name of the group. Definitely look them up, uh, follow them on social media. And um, that's, yeah, that's one, one example that comes to mind. What other groups have you worked with? Um, you know, if you had to name like three or four or five groups that like people should know because they're doing good work. I mean, one of them would be fracktracker.org, right? And then, uh, 
Yeah, gosh, it's so hard because um, I don't know if I should like think nationally or or regionally. Um, I guess I'll think about this region since um, that's kind of what I'm here to talk about. So. Um, like I mentioned before, there's this coalition of groups called the People Over Petro Coalition. And so it kind of brings together a bunch of groups that are organizing to stop the petrochemical build out. Um, and there's a bunch of uh, groups involved. Some of the leaders are uh, concerned Ohio River residents. They're working to stop another ethane cracker um, by a company called PTTG. Um, and they're trying to stop that in Belmont County, Ohio. Um, there's OVEC, the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition, working in West Virginia. There's Mountain Watershed Association and Center for Coalfield Justice doing great rural organizing in southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, there's uh, River Valley organizing in Ohio. There's um, support of some of the larger national groups like Sierra Club and Climate Reality Project. Um, that are supporting this work. Um, gosh, there's, I, I feel bad, like I know I'm missing so many, but those are a few that I know in, that are working in uh, this region. So Sierra Club has Beyond Fossil Fuels, mm -hmm. uh, Cheryl John Cox. Yes, uh, yes. I'm, I'm acquainted with uh, Dustin White of OVEC mm -hmm. and uh, Randy Pokladnik works with uh, OVEC some. Mm -hmm. She's a chemist and a uh, former chemistry teacher does mm -hmm. she tell me stuff about chemistry i never didn't know i didn't know you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yep um, yeah those are all great leaders um doing great work and a group um that is doing a lot of work around the shell ethane cracker uh the acronym is bc mac uh, beaver county marcellus awareness community um they're kind of the group that's been leading the fight to to protect the health and environment around the shell ethane cracker. One, th one thing that Doug mentioned was economic development. Maybe you mentioned it also, Erica, but you know, economic development sounds so benign. It's like, who would not want economic development? But a light bulb went off with me when I saw there's this guy named Jeremy Edgeworth who was on a video and he's like with the Department of Transportation in Kentucky. And uh, he, he's just kind of like, He's got graphics and he's got Kentucky on a map. He's got a map of Kentucky and Kentucky is in the, it looks like the bullseye of this thing. And it's, it's showing how Kentucky lies in between all of these transportation networks, whether you're talking about highways, mm -hmm. railroads, waterways, pipelines. And, and he's naming all these stats, like here's how much we shipped with fossil fuel, like over Kentucky waterways, here are how many, uh, how many tons of fossil fuels have been shipped? How many tons of like silica sand for fracking, et cetera, have been shipped? And it's like, uh, and, and I'm thinking like, this is a good thing. This guy's boasting about all this stuff. Like all of this shipping is a good thing. And I'm thinking, thinking how much of this trickles down how much of this uh, wealth that's generated goes to average people and how much of it is just you know we're taking our we're polluting our waters we're deforesting to build ports and highways etc so 
end of rent, end of rent. <laughs> well, it, I think there's some opportunity. Part of our economic development plan in Louisville is we are a transportation hub. We're, we're in the central of the country. That's why UPS um, has a hub here because we're centrally located. We don't have a lot of severe weather. We have all of these confluences of rail lines, highway lines. Um, we have a suitable airport, et cetera, et cetera. What can come along with that, though, is the flow of ideas. If we're the nexus for the great idea and are experts on how to work on these issues, when bad guys show up, you know, the, the trouble with a lot of things in America is we create these commons that really are for everyone to enjoy. And the bad guys are the people who try to take and appropriate the commons for themselves. And there are a lot of co-opters out there that want to co-opt the the commons. I think that there's real opportunity for Louisville um, to become this hub of environmental justice and of understanding. And uh, I'm really impressed at the data. I know uh, since four or, or five years ago or so, the truth hasn't mattered as much, but it matters to smart people. Um, there's still some people out there that don't believe in facts, but a lot of people I know who have bought the oil industry's sort of mantras, hook, line, and sinker, you know, energy independence, whatever. When you start talking with them one-on-one, -on -one, like, do you know what fracking is? Well, not really. Do you know why coal is no longer viable in Kentucky? Well, it's because fracking is so successful. You know, that's why, you know, uh, it wasn't environmentalists that killed the coal industry. It was the, the oil industry that killed the, the coal industry. And I just think there's a lot of opportunity for us to teach the resilience that we know is here in our communities. Um, spent a lot of time in West Louisville talking to West Louisville leaders. And there's something about living in oppression and being the victim of systemic racism and systemic injustice. There is a clarity about the way forward that I think we, we, we who have enough miss. If you spend enough time with people who don't have enough, it, it can make things clear, I guess. Yeah, I really like that idea of being kind of the nexus or the the central location for ideas. And uh, a tactic of these, you know, extractive industries is to divide people. And you know, uh, the coal industry in Appalachia did that with immigrants um, and um, white people and black people. Um, you know, it purposefully divided them so that they couldn't you know, uh, fight for stronger working protections. And um, that's the oil and gas industry is still dividing communities today. Like I said before, it's such a contentious topic and um, it creates a lot of conflict amongst people. Um, but uh, well, that's what it, I, you know, that, to me, that's what the powers that be do best. And that is divide and rule. They they divide us into categories. I'm, I I told a friend of mine the other day that left and right is hogwash. I mean, he and I he's he identifies with being on the right, and I said left and right is hogwash. Those are just labels that people people yeah. have invented, uh, and we have a lot more in common uh, than assuming somebody is not just you know bullheaded and dogmatic and and uh, and that kind of thing. But you know, using labels to divide us using like tribalism to divide us or using your pro-American or anti-American as if America is like some of this definite thing and not a lot of different things. So 
anyway. I agree with you, Hart. And I think the problem is that conversation, especially that political conversation, distracts us from the true issues. You're either a red state or a blue state or a red precinct or a blue precinct. Of course, what I say to people is, no, you're either a dark purple precinct or a light purple. <laughs> what we need are green precincts. Yeah. You know, both of them are, you know, the D Democratic Party's um, platform for this election still had subsidies to big oil. You know, nobody needs, I mean, they, they're the most, uh, one of the most, if not the most uh, profitable industries in the world. Why are we subsidizing them? Why do we subsidize these big corporate farms that rely heavily on petrochemicals you know, steal the water from the aquifer, poison the land. I mean, if we stop subsidizing those things and subsidize uh, regenerative agriculture, renewable energy, uh, and hold people accountable for that, that's the conversation. How to do that, I don't know. That's a good point. We're going to have to wrap it up in the interest of time. Uh, Erica, what... Uh, how do people get in touch with you? And if you have any parting thoughts, uh, please share that. Yeah, thanks so much. This has been a great conversation. Um, so definitely reach out to Frack Tracker Alliance with um, any questions, comments, follow up. Um, if you, we, a lot, like I said earlier, we do a lot of mapping and data. Uh, so if you are concerned about a fossil fuel uh, project in your region, reach out and we may just may be able to help. Um, you can find us on social media if you search Frac Tracker Alliance, F-R-A-C-T-R-A-C-K-E-R, Alliance. Um, you can email me directly at jackson at fracktracker.org. Um, and then what would be really awesome is we have a petition going right now um, encouraging people to call on the federal agency that oversees pipelines um, they're called, their acronym is FIMSA, to hold a town hall on the Falcon Pipeline. And you can sign that petition and share that petition if you go to tinyurl.com slash P-H-M-S-A Falcon. So tinyurl.com slash P-H-M-S-A Falcon. Uh, and sign that petition and share it around. That would be really awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Erica. Thank you, Doug Lowry, for joining us. And uh, audience, have a great day. Thanks. Thank you.